Chapter 3, Part 1 of A Visit to Three Fronts, June 1916. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Visit to Three Fronts, June 1916, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 3 A Glimpse of the French Line, Part 1. The French soldiers are grand. They are grand. There is no other word to express it. It is not merely their bravery. All races have shown bravery in this war. But it is their solidity, their patience, their nobility. I could not conceive anything finer than the bearing of their officers. It is proud without being arrogant, stern without being fierce, serious without being depressed. Such, too, are the men whom they lead with such skill and devotion. Under the frightful hammer-blows of circumstance, the national characters seem to have been reversed. It is our British soldier who has become debonair, light-hearted, and reckless, while the Frenchman has developed a solemn stolidity and dour patience, which was once all our own. During a long day in the French trenches, I have never once heard the sound of music or laughter, nor have I once seen a face that was not full of the most grim determination. Germany set out to bleed France white. Well, she has done so. France is full of widows and orphans, from end to end. Perhaps, in proportion to her population, she has suffered the most of all. But in carrying out her hellish mission, Germany has bled herself white also. Her heavy sword has done its work, but the keen French rapier has not lost its skill. France will stand at last, weak and tottering, with her huge enemy dead at her feet. But it is a fearsome business to see, such a business as the world never looked upon before. It is fearful for the French. It is fearful for the Germans. May God's curse rest upon the arrogant men and the unholy ambitions which let loose this horror upon humanity. Seeing what they have done, and knowing that they have done it, one would think that mortal brain would grow crazy under the weight. Perhaps the central brain of all was crazy from the first. But what sort of government is it under which one crazy brain can wreck mankind? If ever one wanders into the high places of mankind, the places whence the guidance should come, it seems to me that one has to recall the dying words of the Swedish Chancellor, who declared that the folly of those who governed was what had amazed him most in his experience of life. Yesterday I met one of these men of power, Monsieur Clemenceau, once Prime Minister, now the destroyer of governments. He is by nature a destroyer incapable of rebuilding what he has pulled down. With his personal force, his eloquence, his thundering voice, his bitter pen, he could wreck any policy, but would not even trouble to suggest an alternative. As he sat before me with his face of an old prize-fighter, he is remarkably like Jem Mace as I can remember him in his later days, his angry gray eyes and his truculent mischievous smile he seemed to me a very dangerous man. His conversation, 
if a squirt on one side and Niagara on the other can be called conversation, was directed for the moment upon the iniquity of the English rate of exchange, which seemed to me very much like railing against the barometer. My companion, who has forgotten more economics than ever Clemenceau knew, was about to ask whether France was prepared to take the ruble at face value, but the roaring voice, like a strong gramophone with a blunt needle, submerged all argument. We have our dangerous men, but we have no one in the same class as Clemenceau. Such men enrage the people who know them, alarm the people who don't, set everyone by the ears, act as a healthy irritant in days of peace, and are a public danger in days of war. But this is digression. I had set out to say something of a day's experience of the French front, though I shall write with a fuller pen when I return from the Argonne. It was four soissons that we made, passing on the way a part of the scene of our own early operations, including the battlefield of Villers-Cotterêts, just such a wood as I had imagined. My companion's nephew was one of those guards' officers whose bodies rest now in the village cemetery, with a little British jack still flying above them. They lie together, and their grave is tended with pious care. Among the trees beside the road were other graves of soldiers, buried where they had fallen. So look around, and choose your ground, and take your rest. Soissons is a considerable wreck, though it is very far from being an Ypres. But the cathedral would and will make many a patriotic Frenchman weep. These savages cannot keep their hands off a beautiful church. Here, absolutely unchanged through the ages, was the spot where Saint-Louis had dedicated himself to the crusade. Every stone of it was holy. And now the lovely old stained glass strews the floor, and the roof lies in a huge heap across the central aisle. A dog was climbing over it as we entered. No wonder the French fight well. Such sights would drive the mildest man to desperation. The abbé, a good priest with a large humorous face, took us over his shattered domain. He was full of reminiscences of the German occupation of the place. One of his personal anecdotes was indeed marvelous. It was that a lady in the local ambulance had vowed to kiss the first French soldier who re-entered the town. She did so, and it proved to be her husband. The abbé is a good, kind, truthful man, but he has a humorous face. A walk down a ruined street brings one to the opening of the trenches. There are marks upon the walls of the German occupation. Berlin, Paris, with an arrow of direction, adorns one corner. At another, the 76th Regiment have commemorated the fact that they were there in 1870 and again in 1914. If the Soissons folk are wise, they will keep these inscriptions as a reminder to the rising generation. I can imagine, however, that their inclination will be to whitewash, fumigate, and forget. A sudden turn among some broken walls takes one into the communication trench. 
Our guide is a commandant of the staff, a tall, thin man with hard, grey eyes and a severe face. It is the more severe towards us, as I gather that he has been deluded into the belief that about one out of six of our soldiers goes to the trenches. For the moment he is not friends with the English. As we go along, however, we gradually get upon better terms. We discover a twinkle in the hard grey eyes, and the day ends with an exchange of walking sticks and a renewal of the entente. May my cane grow into a marshal's baton. A charming young artillery subaltern is our guide in that maze of trenches, and we walk and walk and walk, with a brisk exchange of compliments between the seventy-fives of the French and the seventy-sevens of the Germans going on high over our heads. The trenches are boarded at the sides and have a more permanent look than those of Flanders. Presently we meet a fine, brown-faced, upstanding boy, as keen as a razor, who commands this particular section. A little further on, a helmeted captain of infantry, who is an expert sniper, joins our little party. Now we are at the very front trench. I had expected to see primeval men, bearded and shaggy. But the poilus have disappeared. The men around me were clean and dapper to a remarkable degree. I gathered, however, that they had their internal difficulties. On one board I read an old inscription. He is a Bosch, but he is the inseparable companion of a French soldier. Above was a rude drawing of a louse. I am led to a cunning loophole and have a glimpse through it of a little framed picture of French countryside. There are fields, a road, a sloping hill beyond with trees. Quite close, about thirty or forty yards away, was a low red-tiled house. They are there, said our guide. That is their outpost. We can hear them cough. Only the guns were coughing that morning, so we heard nothing. But it was certainly wonderful to be so near to the enemy and yet in such peace. I suppose wandering visitors from Berlin are brought up also to hear the French cough. Modern warfare has certainly some extraordinary sides. Now we are shown all the devices which a year of experience has suggested to the quick brains of our allies. It is ground upon which one cannot talk with freedom. Every form of bomb, catapult, and trench mortar was ready to hand. Every method of crossfire had been thought out to an exact degree. There was something, however, about their disposition of a machine gun which disturbed the commandant. He called for the officer of the gun. His thin lips got thinner and his gray eyes more austere as we waited. Presently there emerged an extraordinarily handsome youth, dark as a Spaniard, from some rabbit hole. He faced the commandant bravely and answered back with respect but firmness. Pourquoi? asked the commandant, and yet again, pourquoi? Adonis had an answer for everything. Both sides appealed to the big captain of snipers, who was clearly embarrassed. He stood on one leg and scratched his chin. Finally, the commandant turned away angrily in the midst of one of Adonis's voluble sentences. His face showed that the matter was not ended. 
War is taken very seriously in the French army, and any sort of professional mistake is very quickly punished. I have been told how many officers of high rank have been broken by the French during the war. The figure was a very high one. There is no more forgiveness for the beaten general than there was in the days of the Republic, when the delegate of the National Convention, with a patent portable guillotine, used to drop in at headquarters to support a more vigorous offensive. As I write these lines, there is a burst of bugles in the street, and I go to my open window to see the 41st of the line march down into what may develop into a considerable battle. How I wish they could march down the Strand, even as they are! How London would rise to them! Laden like donkeys with a pile upon their backs and very often both hands full as well, they still get a swing into their march which it is good to see. They march in column of platoons, and the procession is a long one, for a French regiment is, of course, equal to three battalions. The men are shortish, very thick, burned brown in the sun, with never a smile among them. Have I not said that they are going down to a grim sector? But with faces of granite. There was a time when we talked of stiffening the French army. I am prepared to believe that our first expeditionary force was capable of stiffening any conscript army, for I do not think that a finer force ever went down to battle. But to talk about stiffening these people now would be ludicrous. You might as well stiffen the old guard. There may be weak regiments somewhere, but I have never seen them. I think that an injustice has been done to the French army by the insistence of artists and cinema operators upon the picturesque colonial corps. One gets an idea that Arabs and Negroes are pulling France out of the fire. It is absolutely false. Her own brave sons are doing the work. The colonial element is really a very small one, so small that I have not seen a single unit during all my French wanderings. The colonials are good men, but like our splendid Highlanders they catch the eye in a way which is sometimes a little hard upon their neighbors. When there is hard work to be done, it is the good little French pew-pew who usually has to do it. There is no better man in Europe. If we are as good, and I believe we are, it is something to be proud of. But I have wandered far from the trenches of Soissons. It had come on to rain heavily, and we were forced to take refuge in the dugout of the sniper. Eight of us sat in the deep gloom huddled closely together. The commandant was still harping upon that ill-placed machine gun. He could not get over it. My imperfect ear for French could not follow all his complaints, but some defense of the offender brought forth a jamais, 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 which was rapped out as if it came from the gun itself. There were eight of us in an underground burrow, and some were smoking. Better a deluge than such an atmosphere as that. But if there is a thing upon earth which the French officer shies at, it is rain and mud. The reason is that he is extraordinarily natty in his person. His charming blue uniform, his facings, his brown gaiters, boots, and belts are always just as smart as paint. He is the dandy of the European war. I noticed officers in the trenches with their trousers carefully pressed. It is all to the good, I think. Wellington said that the dandies made his best officers. It is difficult for the men to get rattled or despondent when they see the debonair appearance of their leaders. 
Among the many neat little marks upon the French uniforms which indicate with precision, but without obtrusion, the rank and arm of the wearer, there was one which puzzled me. It was to be found on the left sleeve of men of all ranks, from generals to privates, and it consisted of small gold chevrons, one, two, or more. No rule seemed to regulate them, for the general might have none, and I have heard of the private who wore ten. Then I solved the mystery. They are the record of wounds received. What an admirable idea! Surely we should hasten to introduce it among our own soldiers. It costs little, and it means much. If you can allay the smart of a wound by the knowledge that it brings lasting honor to the man among his fellows, then surely it should be done. Medals, too, are more freely distributed and with more public parade than in our service. I am convinced that the effect is good. The rain has now stopped and we climb from our burrow. Again we are led down that endless line of communication trench. Again we stumble through the ruins. Again we emerge into the street where our cars are awaiting us. Above our heads the sharp artillery duel is going merrily forward. The French are firing three or four to one, which has been my experience at every point I have touched upon the Allied front. Thanks to the extraordinary zeal of the French workers, especially of the French women, and to the clever adaptation of machinery by their engineers, their supplies are abundant. Even now they turn out more shells a day than we do. That, however, excludes our supply for the fleet. But it is one of the miracles of the war that the French, with their coal and iron in the hands of the enemy, have been able to equal the production of our great industrial centers. The steel, of course, is supplied by us. To that extent, we can claim credit for the result. And so, after the ceremony of the walking sticks, we bid adieu to the lines of Soissons. Tomorrow we start for a longer tour to the more formidable district of the Argonne, the neighbor of Verdun, and itself the scene of so much that is glorious and tragic. End of chapter 3, part 1 Recording by Ben Adams